the computer is now happy and we can proceed with your argument. All right. Okay, uh, may it please the court, my name is Jason Yoder and I'm here today representing Mr. Cornwell in this case. I'd like to start with the fourth issue in this case and then I'll talk about the second issue in this case. Mr. Cornwell received ineffective assistance of counsel under the State versus Harbison line of cases when his trial lawyer admitted that Mr. Cornwell was a buyer and seller of drugs, a lesser included Article 5 offense that the state was required to prove pursuant to the indictment for continuing criminal enterprise, and that catching Mr. Cornwell was as easy as shooting fish in a barrel. During the opening statements in this case, the ineffective assistance of counsel began when Mr. Cornwell's attorney openly opined to the jury that he supported law enforcement, that the scope of Mr. Cornwell's crime could have been prevented by the police if they had acted earlier, and how can I argue on Mr. Cornwell's behalf? That's how this case opened to the jury. During trial testimony, Mr. Cornwell's attorney stated to the jury during cross-examination that people at the intersection were pretty much buying and selling drugs and in doing so, breaking the law, weren't they, to the police officer. And finally, during his closing arguments, Mr. Cornwell's attorney admitted that he committed the, committed the crime of buying and selling drugs. He said, I believe this is now about shooting fish in a barrel. It's not difficult to catch fish. It's not difficult to shoot fish in a barrel. A mere buyer and seller relationship between Mr. Cornwell and another person does not constitute supervising, managing, or organizing. If there has ever been an applied admission of guilt to a lesser included offense, this is it. Our cases hold that an attorney is the agent of the client, and they cannot make an admission to the crime or to a lesser included crime unless the client expressly gives permission for that to happen. Let me start with the lesser included portion. Why is this a lesser included crime of CCE? I understand it's, it's part of what needs to be shown, but why is it a lesser included crime? Because if, are you saying that if the, say the state didn't have enough to submit to a jury that there's five people in this organization, say the state only got on evidence of four, would then the state have been free to continue on and seek convictions for the, those listed in the indictment here? Absolutely, Your Honor, that is our contention. But under Richardson, the, the state has the burden of proving each individual uh, offense in that con continuing series beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and each crime is its own discrete crime that must be proven to the jury beyond a reasonable doubt. Here they alleged a specific crime within the CCE framework. And because they were required to prove that to the jury, it is a lesser included of the CCE offense. If during the motion to dismiss phase, for instance, the trial court had concluded there was insufficient evidence of the, the organization, there were not five people, or that there had been um, 
an insufficient proof of substantial uh, money was earned through the CCE, then he could have dismissed the overarching charge and submitted to the jury the lesser included of the buying and selling of drugs and the, um, the, the trafficking cocaine of 400 grams or more. Um, those were two separate crimes. Only two crimes were alleged in the indictment in this case. Uh, and those two crimes could have been submitted to the jury as lesser included offenses under this indictment. Because they were required Without to be- Without a sentencing grid in front of me, wouldn't those two individually, if convicted of those and not the CCE charge, wouldn't those add up to more than what the CCC charge was potentially looking at in punishment? Um, well, the trafficking, uh, a completed trafficking offense is now considered to have a greater punishment uh, if it's a 400 grams or more than um, a completed CCE offense. That is a quirk in the statute um, and the punishments that appears to be, um, have come about because most of the trafficking statutes have come about since CCE was first enacted in 1971. So this statute has languished kind of in the books uh, without the General Assembly paying very much attention to it. Um, I think that's in part because it's hardly, if ever, charged and somehow got charged twice this year in different counties, <laughs> and that's why we're here today. Um, continuing criminal enterprise was, when it was enacted, the largest drug charge that you could be charged with in North Carolina. And I believe it might have been the only charge that you could get life imprisonment for. Um, at the time that it was initially enacted. Uh, subsequently, the General Assembly, um, you know, amended the punishment scheme in, in at least twice uh, since CCE was first enacted for fair sentencing and also for structured sentencing. And um, even though technically uh, trafficking could be considered a lesser of this particular indictment, um, it could, in fact, be punished greater um, in terms of the amount of time you could get if you were sentenced. Thank you. And I, I believe you said that um, there was an implied admission of guilt to a lesser included offense. Can you direct us somewhat to maybe some differentiation cases between an implied admission versus a direct admission? Well, uh, I mean, a direct admission is the sort of the traditional Harbison line of cases where the, the, the um, attorney during closing arguments will say, uh, you should enter a guilty verdict uh, for second-degree murder um, because you haven't proved, the state hasn't proven first-degree murder. Uh, so my client's guilty of second-degree murder. Um, the implied um, line of cases is a little bit more recent, and McAllister is probably the controlling case on that issue from the North Carolina Supreme Court. Um, and that basically says if you look at the totality of what the um, the lawyer says to the jury about the lesser included offense, they, there's no way they can take that as anything less than um, an express concession of guilt as to, um, and this is, I think, an implied admission of guilt, but it's awfully close to a direct admission of guilt because he's saying um, that he is a buyer and seller of drugs, and he's saying he's pretty much breaking the law. So, uh, while he's not expressly telling the jury to enter a guilty verdict um, 
on a lesser included charge, he is telling the jury, look, this guy is guilty of buying and selling drugs at this intersection. And he's basically taking the state's burden of proof away for those lesser included charges. In Matthews, um, was it a situation, was it clear that he was already gonna get an instruction on second degree murder in Matthews? So the concession to second degree murder mattered? Because here we didn't, if I recall, we didn't have, there weren't gonna be instructions on these lesser included, correct? And in fact, there were, there were no instructions whatsoever as to the elements of any of these charges ultimately. Not only did he concede um, guilt as to them, but he didn't even ask the jury to be instructed on them. Um, I think the Harbison error does not turn on the question of whether the jury is ultimately charged with, because that's a decision that can only be made after the trial has been completed and the evidence has been submitted by all of the parties. Um, a lesser included charge is inherent in an indictment. So a second degree murder charge is, is a lesser included always of a first degree murder charge um, when it's based on premeditation and deliberation. Um, but, but does the Harbison presumption of prejudice still e exist in that situation where there's not gonna be an instruction on the lesser included? So there's no chance that the person's gonna be convicted of that? Um, I know we don't the have rule is Harbison doesn't require prejudice, but that's because it's talked about, you know, it's so fundamental that you can't really sort that out, so we're not going to. But if there's no chance of conviction of that, then does that, well, uh, how does that interact with Harbison, I guess, is my question. If, if there's no chance of conviction there's always, of those. Oh, well, so, Your Honor, I would dispute there's no chance of conviction. I, I think even if no instruction had been included, the judge, even after deliberation, still has the power to dismiss the greater and enter judgment on the lesser. Even after a jury enters a guilty verdict on the greater, if he finds that there was insufficient evidence. So uh, sufficiency evidence can be raised both prior to the jury instructions being set in and after the jury instructions are there. And I believe they can, they can even be um, argued after a jury's returned a verdict. So I don't think it necessarily uh, says that, but I do think if a defense lawyer made an implied admission to a lesser included and the jury was not instructed on that, um, it, that admission would be held against the defendant in the judge's mind. The judge's, judge could not dismiss um, the lesser included offense having had the client concede guilt uh, to that offense in front of them. So that admission well, don't we includes him never being acquitted. Don't we use that legal fiction all the time, though, that if, if a judge is making a determination, he's going to set aside, he or she's going to set aside what's relevant, what's not relevant, it's going to only consider something for its proper purpose and wouldn't necessarily consider that admission without a Harbison admonishment to be, you know, concession by the defendant of guilt like a jury would. Would a, would a judge not consider the lawyer's concession to the guilt of the lesser included without a Harbison hearing? I don't know. Applying the legal fiction that we see across the board and, and have to continue to, to use the judges, if the judge is sitting as the finer fact or making that consideration, 
then we have to assume the judge only consider it for the proper purpose unless something says they consider for improper well i think it would be a proper purpose to consider the defendant's admission of guilt um in terms of a motion to dismiss and one of your arguments is about the failure to instruct on the elements of sale and delivery that's correct um and i'll just point out there was no instruction on any yeah of the sub charges um at issue in this seemed odd to me and maybe the state will explain that but um and of course given the fact that there are no other cce cases to look at um and see how they did the instructions that doesn't help us much but but it does seem odd that the offenses that are charged as the series of offenses that there was no instruction on them yes um and that is one of our contentions in the brief that that failure to instruct on any of the article five offenses in this case is effectively has corrupted the instruction so badly um that it essentially resulted in a dismissal of all those charges under the case law here north carolina um in north carolina a failure to submit a single element of a crime uh would not necessarily be prejudicial per se but as far as i understand there has never been a case holding that the failure to instruct on all of the elements of a crime can be reviewed for harmless error and i understand this is a very unique charge because each individual crime is itself an element of the greater offense so this charge is like a russian nesting doll uh where you know inside the cce there are smaller crimes that have to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt and um i think the pattern instruction that was used here might have come from the pattern instruction book um as we know those patterns instructions are not always accurate um and sometimes incomplete and this one having no law well that's, that's what i was thinking <laughs> pattern instructions were presumably created when the statute was at some point after the statute was passed but we've had no development of that by cases because there haven't been any yes and this court has the opportunity to make that decision as to whether the jury has to be instructed on the elements of each one of the offenses um of course not having been instructed at all we don't know exactly what the jury found in this case we don't know which crimes of this series and the evidence that they found uh we don't know for sure if they found them uh each individual one beyond a reasonable doubt or if that each juror just thought yeah mr cornwell's attorney admitted they were buying and selling drugs we saw videos of several transactions that sounds like enough um without the deliberation getting any further and that's a serious problem in a case like this um because you can't know for sure if the jury properly returned a guilty verdict uh, in cases like this um if there are any more questions about the harbison i'd turn quickly to the second issue the double jeopardy issue um it's not every day that you get a case um where there's a federal analog deciding an almost identical issue at the united states supreme court um but this is such a case 
Um, we believe that this case is controlled by Rutledge and the double jeopardy analysis um, that was undertaken in that case. And I think it's important to note um, that both indictments in this case spanned the identical period of time, that both of them had the identical co-conspirators. They both were the exact same statute, 9095H3C, I think it is. And that ultimately, the jury was only instructed once as to the conspiracy, uh, as to the trafficking elements, I'm sorry. Um, they were only instructed once as to the conspiracy portion. The state never requested a second or a different instruction as to trafficking that would have enabled the jury to like make a determination of whether there were two trafficking offenses or two conspiracies in this case. And um, the facts are so closely aligned with Rutledge that we uh, believe you should reverse this for resentencing. Um, I understand it was not uh, preserved by the trial lawyer in this case, and so we did request Rule 2 review, as well as argue for ineffective assistance of counsel. Um, there are cases in North Carolina, and I think I cited them in the brief, holding that an ineffective assistance of counsel claim can be ruled on on direct review for when there's a double jeopardy claim. And that makes sense because you don't really need to have a remand hearing to determine whether it was reasonable to have your client sentenced twice uh, for the same conduct. Um, at the federal level, I believe these are almost always resolved on direct review, um, either through ineffective assistance of counsel claims or through plain air review. Um, and this court has a history of invoking Rule 2 to address double jeopardy claims, um, almost overwhelmingly addressing them on direct review, and I cited all those cases um, in, in the brief. And it's important, even though the two sentences here were run concurrently, um, to address this, because any additional felony, of course, could be used against um, a client in the future. It could be used against a client in a habitual felon case where one felony was struck, but another felony uh, could be used um, as a prior record level point, for instance. Don't we have that with the habitual, or not the, the possession of firearm by a felon that's not challenged? Well, that would be the case in this case. Um, but then you would. The, the I guess prior, since the prior, we're, we're trying to figure out our dis exercise of discretionary hmm. purposes for discretionary purposes, what is the collateral consequence to your client or potential collateral consequence to your client of this additional conviction? Two collateral consequences, obviously. Um, one is that under United States versus Ball, I think is the case and it's cited in my brief, the trial court actually has discretion as to which of the two double jeopardy claims it wants to dismiss. There is no law requiring it to dismiss the lesser included offense. It can, if it so chooses, dismiss the higher level offense. So actually at this stage, we don't know what the trial court would decide and which charge it would ultimately elect to dismiss. 
Is that a matter of constitutional law or a matter of federal criminal procedure? I believe that's a constitutional law, United States versus Ball. I don't think that's rested on any federal rule of criminal procedure. Thank you for that. Um, Thank you for that answer, sorry. Uh, as to the other collateral consequences, I do think there's a prior record level possibility of collateral consequences. Um, it, might, it would depend on, you know, if there was a habitual felon type situation in the future, how those points um, were ultimately used, but obviously possession of a firearm by a felon is a much lower felony classification than either trafficking or continuing criminal enterprise. So if you would take out, um, for instance, the trafficking charge, the, and then there was a habitual felon situation in the future, you would have only the possession of a firearm by a felon to be used as prior record level points. That would be an F, it's worth fewer points than a D or a C, for instance. Um, so there are collateral consequences um, to that that could happen in the future. And those are the kinds of consequences um, that should be considered, that you should consider when you're determining whether to invoke rule two. Um, I also think the reasons for preservation are less important in this situation. Um, of course, it's always important for trial lawyers to raise issues below, but this is not an issue that would have required um, vetting of facts at the trial level. Uh, rather, it's the kind of issue that, that could be resolved. It's essentially judicially efficient for you to resolve it now um, rather than in the, in the future. And would it also be that the, uh, the additional sentencing point factor, the elements of the present offense are included in any prior offense, so if he were convicted of CCC again in the future, that could be a sentencing point there? Yeah, that is a sentencing point that you do see sometime. Um, Thank you. And I, I see that I have um, seven and a half minutes. Um, if there are any more questions, um, I'm pre happy to answer them on any of the issues that I presented in the case. If not, I'll reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. That would be fine. Again, we, we have no problem with that at all. Thank you. That's great. May it please the court. My name is Benjamin Zellinger. I'm from the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I represent the state in this matter. From December of 2017 through May of 2018, the drug kingpin of Hickory, defendant Jerron Cornwell, engaged in a drug conspiracy with numerous co-defendants to traffic, sell, and deliver cocaine throughout the city. Law enforcement, using poll cameras, surveillance, and wiretaps, did something about it. And at his trial, jurors got to not just see the defendant doing his drug dealing, but hear the actual phone calls where the defendant was uh, acting as a supervisor in this drug conspiracy. And this appeal is really about whether prosecutors need to break down an element of cr continuing criminal enterprise to articulate specific facts that constitute a cr continuing criminal enterprise and an indictment, something that uh, has never been required with state law. I'd like to address four points with this court. First, this question, is there any authority for this defendant's new contention that an indictment needs to enumerate predicate acts that form a continuing criminal enterprise? Second, was there error for the court to sentence the defendant for these two distinct offenses, 
And whether the court should even reach this when defendant concedes that this issue is not preserved for appeal. Third, that the jury instruction that was provided by the trial court followed the pattern in relevant case law. And fourth, that there was not uh, ineffective assistance of counsel when counsel attempted to distinguish defendant's role in this drug scheme. And I'd like to start, I guess I'll follow the, the defendant's um, appellant's um, pattern and start with the fourth issue about the ineffective assistance of counsel. And I'd firstly uh, encourage the court to look at what was actually said because what was written in appellant's brief and what was just argued to you was not what was said. Um, specifically on page 32 of appellant's brief, and, I, and I'm sure, I don't want to disparage um, appellant counsel, I'm sure this was an accident, and it appears that the first paragraph where um, Mr. Cornwell's attorney said, I believe that this is now about shooting fish in a barrel, neither makes you a hunter nor a marksman. It's kind of like if you've ever been to a stocked lake. And then it ends with this sentence, it's not difficult to shoot fish in a barrel. And then it starts back, a mere buyer-seller relationship between Mr. Cornwell and another person does not constitute supervising, managing, or organizing. There's three pages in between those comments. Um, and it's important to note what is said in those three pages because it is the defendant's counsel arguing as hard as he can that despite this smoke of all the drug dealing that was happening in this neighborhood of Ridgeview, um, that this defendant was not a supervisor or administrator of a drug conspiracy. And so essentially, at best, what could be argued is not an implied admission of guilt. At best, what could be um, argued is that there's an implied admission to one of the elements of this crime, which is that there was some element of drug dealing going on. Um, and at this point, I spent a lot of time in the state's brief, probably in error, talking about the potential prejudice to the defendant. And, and that doesn't really matter, of course, as, as the case law dictates under McAllister. But what does matter is the context of how these comments came out, because the jury just heard days and days of testimony of this defendant on the phone talking with people about trafficking drugs. And they saw him with videos of him taking this black bag out, which is this sort of modus operandi, and selling drugs. And so um, it's important to note in here that um, the defendant's counsel said, right now the state has not shown, and they do not have the last three ingredients, and that is that he joined forces with five other people to help him commit these crimes. The five other people he oversaw as an organizer, supervisor, or manager, and then he acquired substantial amount of income or resources as a result of these crimes. So essentially, what defendant's counsel did is he got up there after the jury has seen and hear, heard all this testimony about the defendant. And again, this isn't you know, merely a confidential informant saying, oh, I saw this guy, believe me. They got to see it and hear it with their own eyes and ears. Um, so he's got to get up there and try to mitigate this and try to find a way out for his client. And so if you do find that this... Um, second paragraph that actually occurs on page 581, not page 578, is some sort of admission. It's, it's immediately followed by um, Mr. Cornwell and another person does not constitute supervising, managing, or organizing. The fact that a person is a seller does not mean that he or she has some managerial role. Um, earlier on that page, the state has not proven that Mr. Cornwell knew Mr. Hatcher. If that's the case, they haven't proven or been able to show that he had anything to do with coordinating anything with Mr. Hatcher. The state did not show that Mr. Cornwell funded or paid any of Mr. Mungro's expenses at the hotel. The state did not show or hasn't shown that Mr. Cornwell ever directed, managed, or supervised any of his friends. It's not there. I don't want to read all three pages of the transcript of the court, but I'd urge the court to pay close attention to what was actually said, because when you compare it 
with the actual case law for Harbison, it is far different. Um, and of course, in Harbison, defendant's counsel said, I don't feel that Williams should be found innocent. In Matthews, a Supreme Court case from 2004, this is probably the first time I've come up in front of the jury and said you ought to not even consider that last possibility, which is not guilty. Um, State v. Goss, 2007, um, you return the verdict that the evidence supports guilty of second-degree murder. Um, Campbell from 2005, the only difference is a second-degree murder case lacks that specific intent element, and I submit to you that that's where we're in at this case, folks. Um, defendant's counsel had an impossible task in, in trying to argue this at closing, and without making some sort of acknowledgement of the facts surrounding the case, the defense attorney would have no shot of saying anything credible to the jury. And so um, I'd argue to you that to require that the admission of part of an element constitutes a need for a Harbison hearing would have a chilling effect on defendants' counsel's ability to argue cases um, and argue for um, their clients. Um, and if there's not any questions on... Well, I want, if you can, talk a little bit about this lesser included aspect. Sure. So um, I think that's where, where I see the most rub, at least right now, sitting here as we're talking, um, that given what was in the indictment, that there may have been an admission to a lesser included at a minimum. And does that matter or not in this situation? Is it actually a lesser included? Are there lessers included to the statute or not? And Judge, as you astutely noted, there were no lesser includeds provided to the jury in this case. And of course, charging conference comes before the closing argument, so defendant's counsel was aware of that. And um, so I guess to start, whether the sale or, uh, or buying of drugs or the sale and delivery of drugs would constitute a lesser included offense, I, I dispute that in that in this case, um, Maybe the facts would, would support that, but I think that this court is forced to take a categorical approach in this. And the court could have a situation where someone is an administrator or supervisor of a drug conspiracy, but they don't actually sell or deliver the drugs. They're just involved in setting up that fabric. And whether that would constitute a sale and delivery, I think, is, is a hard sale. So I'm not sure that it is specifically a lesser included, but you run into this instance of where you concede a potential element, and that's not violative of our case law. And the question is whether it truly is a lesser included, and I think there's enough in the continuing criminal enterprise elements um, that cast a question about whether this really would be a lesser included based on sort of this categorical approach about, um, about whether looking at whether the violation of this, uh, the violations was part of a continuing series, whether that would satisfy a lesser included. But here, in this specific case, there wasn't a lesser included. So uh, I'd argue that that's sort of a red herring that um, that defendant's counsel knew that he didn't have to worry about that at that point. And therefore, it, it, you know, he can make these sort of um, make these sort of concessions about what the context of the case should. And I mean, again, there was overwhelming evidence in this case. Um, and so it's hard not to talk about the prejudice, but I think the reason that it's relevant is because there's so much evidence about this defendant's guilt that this defendant's counsel had an impossible task. And, and, he, and he did everything he could, and then he argued, look, this neighborhood, you walk out there and it's like shooting fish in a barrel. And, and he's not talking about specifically Mr. Cornwell. He's saying, 
Ridgeview is that sort of stocked lake um, where there's these houses and there's everybody out there selling drugs and then he tries to distinguish his client is, is not been proven to be related to all that. He's not an administrator. The state hasn't shown it and the state hasn't proven it. Um, I'll then jump to the third issue because I think that the court had some questions about it and defendants sort of touched on it, so I'll go backwards through, through the issues as they're presented in the, the brief um, about whether the trial court properly instructed the jury on the continuing criminal enterprise statute. And, and firstly, the first and foremost thing is, is that this is invited error. Uh, the court asks defendants' trial counsel, is this satisfactory to you? And defendants' counsel says, yes, sir, it is. And so it's kind of unfair for defendants to now claim that this, this was unfair um, and that the jury instruction, and, and the reason that it's done in this way is so that there's a desire, and, and I quoted the State v. Odom case, there's a desire to make sure that any objections come at the, up at the trial court so there's not multiple repeated trials and, and trial courts can correct any errors in, in um, what's provided to a jury. But um, so this was not preserved for appeal. It was never objected to, and in fact, it was invited error because it was, it was agreed upon by defendants' counsel. But additionally, and, and probably more what the court was asking about earlier, this CCE instruction was accurate. Um, defendant draws issue with the fact that, the, I guess to start with, what was actually said to the jury was that the defendant committed a felony under the Controlled Substances Act by selling and delivering cocaine and by trafficking, and or by trafficking in cocaine by sale and delivery and that this felony was a part of a continuing series of violations of the Controlled Substances Act, specifically that the defendant sold or delivered cocaine on multiple occasions between December and May, um, December 2017 to May of 2018. The pattern during instruction for sale and delivery of drugs is that the defendant knowingly sold or delivered named substance to, to the buyer. So it's not like the jury was going to receive any additional information. If, if the judge said, hold on, I'm going to instruct on what sale and delivery is, it would sound exactly the same, that there was um, trafficking in cocaine by sale and delivery, that the defendant, um, that there was a felony under the Controlled Substances Act by selling and delivering. Specifically, a defendant sold or delivered cocaine. That's exactly what's in the sale or delivery instruction that's provided to a jury if you're being tried just for those offenses. So. I don't think that this ar argument was preserved for appeal and that this court should reach it. And then additionally, the instruction was accurate. Um, was, was there any, so I'm assuming the defendant obviously didn't request any specific instructions. That, that's correct. And, and so did they just go on the pattern instruction? And that is correct, Your Honor. They just went on the pattern instruction and, and not only was that, was there no objection, but there was an agreement by a defendant's counsel. Um, at this point, I'd like to turn to the, the second issue which defendant raised, which is this um, claim that um, the defendant um, could not be sentenced for both the continuing criminal enterprise and the trafficking, which are two distinct and separate offenses. Um, firstly, and perhaps most importantly, defendant seeks to raise this issue on appeal and concedes that this issue was not preserved um, and that he has waived his right to appeal on this issue. Um, and again, the, it's important to look at what Rule 2 says. The text of Rule 2 provides two instances in which an appellate court may waive compliance with appellate rules. One, to prevent manifest injustice to a party, or two, to expedite decision in the public interest. And so here, it appears that the only argument could be that this was a manifest injustice to a party. 
and his case where the two sentences were consolidated or run concurrently. So the only collateral effect basically is that in 15 years or however long it is, if Mr. Cornwell gets out and commits another offense, um, he could have additional sentencing points for that. But it's also important to recognize why a defense attorney might not argue for uh, two sentences um, to arrest judgment on one of the sentences. And that's because what happened here, the judge consolidated, or I keep saying consolidated, I apologize. He ran them concurrently. But if the judge is going to run them concurrently, it's an interesting question of whether this was a strategic decision by the defense attorney not to argue to arrest him because his client is basically not having two consecutive sentences but is instead going to have a concurrent sentence where the only collateral problem is that maybe he has um, sentencing points in the future. And so that, that was a strategic decision. Um, and so when we get into these issues of whether it was a strategic decision, and, and defendant will argue, well, look, no one would, would seek to go here and would want judgment arrested and would never, um, would never seek to not do that. And, and I don't know that that's that clear because if, if defendant's counsel has some sort of idea that these sentences are going to be run concurrently, it might be a risky endeavor for defendant's counsel to request that one be arrested. Um, but looking at rule two, again, is this a manifest injustice? Um, and I, and I'm, of course, I pointed to Steingrass, which says that without enforcement of the appellate rules, their value and benefit is lost. I mean, there's, there's a lot of reasons why rule two can't be um, used to raise an issue when um, it's it, without some sort of manifest injustice. And here, we don't have that manifest injustice. Here, that's an extraordinary step to use rule two. And, and I did cite in, in my brief State v. Glenn, which was a capital case um, in which the court declined to use rule two to address um, two counts of first-degree murder where a defendant was sentenced to two life sentences. But moving on to the actual um, meat of what the elements are and, and what these um, cases involve, these are two distinct offenses. And they involve, each one involves an element that the other one does not include. And so um, they're not lesser included of each other. And therefore, under the Blockburger test, um, they would not be as they're not they would not violate the Blockberger test in in this instance. And and the five elements of continuing criminal enterprise are the defendant committed a felony under the Controlled Substances Act by selling or delivering cocaine um, or by trafficking in, in cocaine. Second, that the felony was part of a continuing series. Third, that um, this series he undertook in concert with five other people. Fourth, that with respect to these positions, the defendant occupied a position as organizer, supervisor, or other position of management, and fifth, the defendant obtained substantial income or resources from the series of crimes. The conspiracy statute has three elements. This defendant and other people entered into agreement that the agreement was to commit trafficking in cocaine by sale, distribution, manufacture, transportation, or possession. And this was of 400 grams of cocaine. Um, and that weight issue is what makes it not a lesser included here. Um, and that's included in the indictment for the conspiracy. Um, and then third, that the defendant and other persons intended the agreement be carried out at the time that it was made. So going from the CCE statute to the conspiracy to traffic statute, the CCE statute has this element that the person has to be a supervisor and, that's not, and other elements that aren't found in the trafficking. And then if you go from the trafficking statute to the CCE statute, there's this weight requirement. that There's the 400 grams of, of cocaine that have to be done. And so therefore, um, these offenses are not um, lesser included of each other. Um, and 
I would also take issue with a lot of defendants' arguments sort of occur in a vacuum of what North Carolina case law says because there's a sort of a lack of case law about continuing criminal enterprise. Um, and so defendant takes federal case law and says, well, this means that in North Carolina, this is true that a uh, CCE offense, that a uh, conspiracy to traffic is a lesser included of a CCE offense, and that's the Rutledge case. Um, that's a federal case. And we have different statutes. We have the, I would ask the court to look at 21 USC 841 and 846 and 848 versus our trafficking statutes and our state conspiracy statutes because the language is different. Um, the weight constitutes uh, trafficking in the, the conspiracy count, um, which might be different. Um, the CCE indictment also alleged the defendant bought and sold cocaine, whereas conspiracy requires this traffic amount. Um, and there ha also has been this argument that was rejected in Rutledge, but has never been heard in our state courts, that undertaking something in concert with five other persons, as exists in the CCE um, crime, might be something different than did conspire that's found in the conspiracy agreement. And so um, I don't take that the federal law is necessarily the exact same as the North Carolina law because these statutes are different. And lastly, um, I'd like to turn to the um, first issue, if there's not any questions on that, that second I'm gonna issue. Have an ish I'm going to have a question for you, but I'm having some computer problems, so feel free to move on, but I'm going to come back with a question on that. Thank you, Judge. Um, the indictment for continuing uh, criminal enterprise was sufficient to track the statutory language. You've heard some of these arguments. Um, and the indictment language that was used was um, accurate here. And, and there's a couple things that I'd like to point out in looking at the federal case law. Again, defendant um, pulls Richardson, a U.S. Supreme Court case, which really was about the unanimity requirement. And the defendant actually raised this in his argument earlier today, and that's not before the court. There is not a unanimity issue before this court today about whether the jury um, all found the same way on the continuing violations. But the element of continuing criminal enterprise has to mean something. The element is not um, dictate that on this day there was some sale, this day there was some sale, and there was it, it, the, the fact that the statute requires that there needs to be a continuing series um, with five or five other persons, that needs to mean something. And so really what we're trying to do here is substitute a new element into that continuing series where that needs to be pled with factual specificity. Um, if you look at the CCE indictment, um, it alleges that um, that the defendant engaged in a criminal, continuing criminal enterprise by violating North Carolina General Statute 9095H3C by trafficking in cocaine and by violating, um, by selling and delivering cocaine. These violations, the violations were part of a continuing series of violations. And so the defendant is put on notice. And so uh, this is not a constitutional question. This is a statutory interpretation question. And the federal statutory interpretation could be different than the state the state statutory interpretation that might not exist at this point. Um, but federal courts have rejected defendant's argument, if you want to use that as sort of circumstantial evidence of what this court should do. Um, even in the wake of Richardson, um, in Flaherty, um, in, in Ulbricht, so there was a SDNY case that, that I cited, just to demonstrate what federal courts are doing with this currently. They are, 
uh, Ulbricht said, the law is clear that an indictment need not specifically identify the predicate offenses for a CCE charge. Um, this, it goes on to say, this unanimity requirement, that, which the jury instructions already made clear, does not suggest that the universe of possible predicate offenses must be circumscribed. Um, United States v. Montague is a Second Circuit case um, that addresses this as well, um, in which the indictment was very similar to the indictment in the CCE case at Barr. And so the defendant is getting open file discovery. The defendant's put on notice of the violations. This is not a question where the defendant doesn't have notice of what exactly he is being charged with. And that's really the essence of what an indictment is, to put a defendant on notice of the crime that he's facing. And if there was some sort of issue where defendant said, I'm not very clear on the details of these violations, the proper way to address such concerns is through a bill of particulars. And um, you don't have to take my word for that. If you look at the Montague case um, from, the four, from the Second Circuit, um, it, it goes on to state that um, although a bill of particulars cannot save an invalid indictment, the bill's purpose is to advise the defendant of the specific acts of which he is accused. And so here, um, these federal cases can be distinguished because the state laws are a little bit different. And um, to address this, there isn't a unanimity issue because that hasn't been raised. Um, and I'd be happy to answer any questions that the court may have um, on any of these issues before sitting down. I guess, as we were talking about the CCE and these other crimes that go into it, started looking at our felony flee to elude, speeding to elude arrest, and the factors listed there. And, and our court, at least, has held that you can't convict for both felony flee to elude and, I mean, you can convict for them, but you can't get punished for both. You can't get punished also for uh, speeding in excess of 15 or reckless driving. So using that as, as a point of comparison, you have a statute that's pretty all-encompassing, so you, you're never going to have all these elements necessarily lining up in, in the face of the statute, but when it comes to getting to the particulars of what's charged, we did look at that, and we look at, yeah, you can commit it in other ways, but when it's done this way, you can't be punished for both. So talk to me just for a couple of minutes of, about that aspect, and if you can, differentiate that for me. Sure, and so I think that the the thing that separates those two examples are that, um, and, and I haven't done motor vehicle law in a while, but the, the fleet elude, the um, lesser included necessarily, the elements are all captured by the sort of larger offense. Here we don't have that. Here the elements are different, and so they don't sort of merge together. And court might say, well, look, there's trafficking in one and trafficking in the other, but I think the court has to look at this under a categorical approach where you look at the actual elements of the crime. And conceivably, you could commit continuing criminal enterprise um, in a way in which it wouldn't have a lesser included of conspiracy to traffic necessarily. Um, similarly, the, there are separate facts. You'd have, you'd have that with, you know, speeding in excess of 15 miles an hour in this situation. Sure. And, and because with the, the statute, with the CCE statute, it says what, any Article 5 felony. So that's just, it's a list. It's an exhaustive list, just like here. It's just, it's incorporated by reference by saying basically any felony under this article. 
Um, so why should we not be looking at it the same? Conspiracy to traffic is um, included in that. I think the distinction that can be made here is that, that, that there isn't case law that supports or says that conspiracy to traffic is a lesser included of our CCE statute. Appellant will stand up here and say federal courts have found that, but our, the language in ours is different, um, specifically that there's a, a weight difference. And I, and I guess under your hypothetical, the weight difference would be sort of akin to the um, the speed limit by, or going excess of 15, but there's other things that are required there. But the fact that these two, these two statutes have different elements, no matter which way you look at them, um, I think is what distinguishes them um, from that sort of hypothetical. Um, and while we bring up sort of other criminal statutes, I would point out to the court in evaluating issue one about the um, sufficiency of the indictment that there are other state statutes that include a sort of continuing course of events. Um, and I don't have any cases cited that, that those have to be specifically pled, but, um, but look at, at kidnapping, for instance, um, that there, there has to be an intent to commit a felony therein. And the question is whether you have to um, articulate that felony in indictment. And there's case law in the state about that. Um, same thing with stalking. Um, one of the elements of stalking is engaged in a course of conduct directed at a victim without legal purpose. Um, and, and I'd argue to you that that's a similar situation where an indictment would not need to include specific events of times where it occurred, but instead you have these continuing series of violations, much like you have in, in this um, continuing criminal enterprise statute where um, you can have a continuing series of, uh, of violations without articulating in the notice, in the indictment, specifically the, the, the um, facts that support it. I'd be happy to answer any questions. Otherwise, I would respectfully ask that this court affirm um, the trial court. Thank you. Thank you. All right, thank you. Morning again. I'm just going to touch very briefly on some of the things that council has addressed. Uh, one, he says that there are no cases, um, you know, holding that a conspiracy is a lesser count of CCE, CCE. And of course, we admit that. That's why we're here today. There are no cases on this statute at all about anything in North Carolina. Um, so that is not a reason to rule in the state's favor. Um, Second is to the double jeopardy claim. He keeps saying that the 400 grams was a requirement of the conspiracy to traffic in cocaine, but not the CCE. But if you look at the two indictments, you'll see that both of them list the exact same statutory provision, which is 9095H3C. That is the provision for 400 grams. So the state is disclaiming, essentially, an element from its own indictment um, here today. Um, in order to prove a violation of that substatute, it had to prove the 400 grams. So there is no element in the conspiracy that is different than the CCE. Um, I'd also take, or I'd object slightly, you can't object on evidentiary grounds here, to his contention that this is a, um, that the defendant was charged with trafficking. Because of course he was never separately charged with trafficking, it's a conspiracy. And that is the essence of this case, that there are two conspiracies. And that 
That's the reason why they merged. If he had been charged with trafficking under our case law, there would be no double jeopardy claim because an individual can be theoretically convicted of a conspiracy statute uh, and of a completed offense. And that's actually supported by the state's memorandum of additional authority when it filed, I think, Garrett from the United States Supreme Court. So, so we would take uh, objection to that a little bit. Um, he did try to draw a distinction between acting in concert um, and conspiracy. And I don't think the law in North Carolina has diverged from federal case law. Under this statute, it's not just that the individuals acted in concert. Acting in concert in North Carolina does not require any express agreement uh, between the participants. But under this statute, you have to act in concert as a supervisor and as a manager of those lower level people. That's what makes this a conspiracy statute. There has to be an agreement between the kingpin and the underworkers here to carry out um, these Article 5 violations together. That's what makes um, the acting in concert part of this really a conspiracy. And that's essentially the a holding of Richards, uh, Rutledge. Um, so um, I think that it's true, none of these federal cases are necessarily binding on questions of state law, but they're extremely compelling. And every single circuit um, has found these to be a double jeopardy violation. I did look for other states, but the CCE statute's so unique, it, it doesn't seem to be in other states, or at least there's no case law in it same as there is in North Carolina, so I, I can't tell you what other states uh, might do. Um, as for the Harbison issue, um, he did address, say that I, my uh, statement of facts was misleading, and I think there was a paragraph break in between those two statements. There probably should have been an ellipses in there. Um, that was my recollection. If I didn't include that, um, I apologize for that, Your Honors. Uh, if there are no more questions, um, we just ask that you either reverse this case, um, reverse this case for a Harbison hearing as to issue four, reverse for resentencing um, under issue two, or vacate the criminal, continuing criminal enterprise under issue one, um, or vacate the criminal, continuing criminal enterprise under issue three. There's a lot of things going on. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you very much for your arguments. We learned a lot about continuing criminal enterprises today. Thank you very much. And we will adjourn. <laughs>